Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode in her space. I quickly realized how common that was for Black folks in particular, that we had left many of us the South, wound up in other places or remained in the South. But the reasons why we stayed or the reasons why we left, you know, were were very unclear and they were often painful. And so this process of telling narratives is a healing process for me. This process of sharing the narratives with other folks is also, I understand, healing for them as well. It's answering those questions that are difficult. Welcome to Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the Her Space Podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Lady, today you are in for a treat. We are joined in her space by Dr. Candace Harrison, a Kansas City native, Dr. Harrison received her PhD in history from Emory University. She has been teaching history at the University of San Francisco since 2008. At USF, she is currently the faculty director of Black Achievement, Success, and Engagement, and has also served as director of the African American Studies Program. Welcome, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to join you both. We are looking forward to this conversation on history. So we are going to start off with our quote of the day. You can tell a great deal about a country and a people by what they deem important enough to remember, to create moments for, what they put in their museum, and what they celebrate. That quote comes to us from Lonnie Bunch, founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, Candace, we're just going to dive right on. And if you can just tell us a little bit about the work that you do at USF, that would be awesome. Oh, sure. So I've, for the past few years, I have been the director for the Black Achievement Success and Engagement Program, also known as BASE. And that's given me an opportunity to continue teaching history, but really embed that into a student's daily experiences, but also create an immersion trip through 10 different cities, at least four different states throughout the Deep South, really allowing our students to walk in the footsteps of our ancestors and come face to face with historical narratives that I normally just get to teach in the classroom. So it's it's really the past few years have been about just strengthening my own love of history, my own love of black history and allowing students to immerse themselves in that. It's been amazing. That is incredible. And I know Dom has had some experience with this here. So I just want to put it out there. If you ever are, if you're ever looking for an additional person to, to join, <laughs> with me, I mean, these trips, when Dom has shared just a little bit of her experience going, I think on two mm-hmm. of the emergent trips, I was just blown away by what she experienced there. Yeah. I don't want to speak for her, but I will say it's, <laughs> it's, it's an extraordinary trip. It's something that I've dreamt about creating for students for a long time. So to be able to have this opportunity to actually create a chance 
for us to reflect as a Black community on the significance of Black historic and sacred spaces. And to go back to your quote that you read at the beginning, Dom, just about, you know, you can tell a lot, right, by a nation, by what it remembers and what it doesn't. And so on the trip, we really get a chance to do that. We get a chance to see how museums, how historic sites recognize or don't recognize Black folks. Mm -hmm. And then we get to change the narrative up a little bit, right? Because the whole trip is about honoring and recognizing our Black ancestors. So it's, it is, it's emotional, it's a roller coaster, it's powerful, and it's definitely life-changing. All the adjectives that I was getting ready to put out there (laughs) and just, yeah, yeah, just reiterate that how incredible it is and like such a unique opportunity for students to be able to have that experience. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what sparked that dream to create this immersion trip, to create these experiences for students? You know, at USF, we care a lot about changing the world. There's a lot of emphasis on these kinds of immersion trips, and especially immersion trips where you travel globally, right, to experience different cultures. And, you know, that always, it's beautiful, but it always irked me a little bit that there weren't more immersion trips domestically. Mm-hmm. And that there wasn't enough focus on other unseen histories or narratives. And to me, that is Black history. So again, having an opportunity to create this for students who, even if you know we've got a handful who may actually be from the South, they're being introduced to this beautiful, extraordinary, powerful, emotional legacy of Black folks who are rooted firmly in U.S. history who built U.S. history. And so to me, creating this immersion trip is a way to honor the significance of that narrative, to really ground it in the larger narrative of the United States and to also recognize their power and their agency in building this country. I guess I can't say enough how fortunate the students are to have that experience because one of the things that we know is that the narrative that is often taught is not always truthful or accurate. Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, even if it is accurate, that's usually they get little pieces of accuracy, right? So, you know, I mean, most of us have the same story that we went through school, you know, increasingly we learned about some major Black historical figures, Martha King Jr., Obama, <laughs> you know, has now become a major historical figure everybody points to. But it's all the little folks in between. It's the vast majority of African-American lives and experiences that, again, laid the groundwork for this country that we just don't learn about. And there's real beauty to me in the everyday folk. And so bringing, again, students back to the South, bringing staff, bringing friends, bringing my own family on these trips over the past couple of years, I think it's just, it it reinvigorates me. It reinvigorates my love for everyday people and everyday Black folks and the power that they really had in shaping the country. So it is, it's an amazing opportunity. And Candice, quick question for you. When it comes to researching our history and trying to, sort of put the puzzles, you know, the puzzle pieces together. How do we know what we can trust? I feel like I wish I would have gotten into history a lot sooner than I did. But I feel like when I did, you know, start Googling or finding books, it's like, how do we even know what to believe when we've had when we have this history that has it seems as though it's been people have been trying to erase it for the longest. Right. How do we know what we can trust? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, especially at this moment in time. We got all the fake news and fake media and all these things. You know, you trust academic sites in general, even if some historians are biased in their interpretations, at least you can trust that academics in particular have been trained to tell, you know, accurate narratives, right? They're not going to be false. They may still leave out bits and pieces, but they're not going to be false typically. So as you're Googling, you know, Google away, (laughs) go down the (laughs) rabbit hole, right, of historical information, but just sort of fact check those things by really paying attention to educational sites, right? Any sort of .edus, right? You're going to stumble across historians in particular who are giving more accurate narratives. And then don't just don't just read one, 
read 15. Okay. If that's too much, I get it. 15. Okay. okay. So five. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like 15. We're going to be there for like, we're really going to be down a rabbit hole. (laughs) You will. (laughs) But that's the fun in it too. I mean, you know, if you, if you, you definitely need to read more than one, right? Because again, it's not, you know, historians in particular, it's not that we are intentionally leaving out information. It's that we've got different focuses overall. So reading multiple academics, reading the way that they interpret different historic events or people, is actually really important to completing the whole story for you. So yeah, that's what I would suggest. Well, and I will say, I feel like I didn't really start to gain an interest in learning my history and ancestry. Unfortunately, it wasn't until I began to look at starting a family I sort of got to this, I was in this space where I was like, you know what, I want to make sure that I can tell my child like where we came from and what is this family tree going to be like? And so that's literally what prompted me to, you know, get that ancestry account, send in that DNA and all that. What sparked your interest in history and why is it important for us to understand our history? Oh boy. Uh oh, we open the can. I know. Well, when I was six years old, I'm just kidding. I get it. This is not free therapy for me. So I don't know. I, you know, I, I did have an interest at a really young age. And for me, I think it was because there were so many silences within my own family. And I didn't quite understand, you know, <laughs> the reasons why people were silent. If I can flesh this out a little bit more, because I think it's a really common situation for a lot of us, right? Like our families represent a lot of love, hopefully, but also a lot of pain. And so sometimes, right, our parents, our siblings, our aunts and our uncles, right, they sort of just go dark. And when we ask questions, they don't want to answer because it's scratching the surface of a lot of trauma for them. So that's how I grew up. Right. I mean, I I grew up with a family again who was incredibly loving to me, incredibly supportive. But when I would try to ask questions about, you know, their former lives in Louisiana, most of them came to Kansas City from the second great migration. I wasn't getting a lot of answers. When I asked farther back than that, right, there was just total silence or clearly what to me, even at the age of 10, I could read as a sugar coating. (laughs) So, you know, it, it was for me about trying to answer those questions, trying to fill in those gaps. And I think that just turned into my entire life, you know, doing that for myself became doing it for other people. I quickly realized how common that was for Black folks in particular, that we had left many of us the South, wound up in other places or remained in the South. But the reasons why we stayed or the reasons why we left, you know, were were very unclear and they were often painful. And so this process of telling narratives is a healing process for me. This process of sharing the narratives with other folks is also, I understand, healing for them as well. It's answering those questions that are difficult. Wow. I took you a different way than you expected, probably. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, we've talked to, we've had Dr. Tama Bryant Davis on a previous episode Mm. and she talked about intergenerational trauma. Yeah. And so what you're saying makes sense, ties into that, that a lot of that intergenerational trauma is because of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It absolutely is. And trying to protect ourselves or doing what we think is protecting ourselves from things that are harmful in the past. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, we've, again, right, previous generations have tried to shelter us from those things. But in the process, they have, you know, severed our relationships with our ancestors. And, you know, when you do that, to me, what's problematic is that, you know, you, you sever relationships, you, you, <laughs> you don't pass on stories of folks who actually made you who you are, yeah. you know, whose traits you carry without realizing it. You know, if you're an artist, you have no idea that two generations back or three generations back, right, your family was full of artists. You have no idea. Mm -hmm. And then you stumble upon that and suddenly, you know, your own life makes sense that you are part of something bigger and better and more beautiful, you know, than you could have imagined. It's very affirming. 
to find, you know, your, your people. That is so true. And it just made me think about the fact that I remember when I was younger, I would have like not the non-black, really the white friends that I had. They would always talk about how they would travel overseas to like go visit their, you know, their family. Mm-hmm. They, they appear to be so well traveled, but also so connected to their history. Yes. So they'd have heirlooms and they talk about, oh, yeah, my third, you know, great, great, great uncle and grandfather. And I'm just like, I don't know shit about my family. Right. Like, I had no right. outside of Nana, who was my mom, my grandmother's mom. Like that yes. was it for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, That's true. Tough. And what does it mean, right? To be... Exactly. To, re- to really be reconnected. And again, to me, that that's why I don't take my students all the way to the continent. I don't take them right to Ghana. I don't, I don't take them to the West Coast of Africa. Not yet, anyway. That's in the works. Yes. <laughs> but to me, right, our grounding is still in the Deep South. Not for all of us, right? Some of us have roots in the Northeast, but the majority of us have our roots, our heirlooms, our land, right? Our values, our culture, our our ancestral experiences, what we created in this nation is rooted in the Deep South. So taking them there is taking them home. And speaking of the Deep South, there's a sort of, I want to say there's a question or a sentiment that often either white people or non-black people will say, and sometimes we'll see it in media. And it's so annoying to me. So I really want to address this so that black people can feel equipped to answer this when it comes up. But they they often say like, oh, slavery was so long ago. Oh. Why are black people still talking about it? Like, <laughs> it was, oh my gosh, it was so long Sorry. ago. And I'm like, if y'all, if you could just understand how we're still very much impacted by slavery and all the implications, like, can we just talk about that, Candace? Can you just dive into like, Mm-hmm. How did slavery impact Black people and African Americans? But how are we still being impacted by everything after that? Yes, <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> well, that is a super easy question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, when you think about what it means to enslave people for two centuries to handicap an entire race, it means you handicap an entire race, and the idea that we would be able to get over that at any moment is is insane. First of all, there's that intergenerational trauma, right, that Dom just talked about, that we absolutely carry with us. It's become popular, I'd say, in the past 30, 40 years to talk about this knapsack of white privilege, right, that white folks carry. Well, in our knapsack as Black people, there's a whole lot of trauma that we carry with us. And so it's important to root that out for ourselves, you know, we'll never convince, I think, other people that it's real, what we carry, the pain that we carry, but we know that. The other obvious way that slavery is important is the way that it went on to affect, you know, generations of folks afterwards. So by handicapping us socially, economically, and politically, it meant that for the next two centuries, we have had to fight our entire narrative is about fighting for social, economic, political, racial equality overall. But, you know, I mean, I, to give you a more concrete example, not as a sociologist, but as a historian, one of the things that I'm researching right now about my own family is about the loss of our land that took place after the Civil War. So one of not many folks, but some folks that come from a family who on both sides, my mother's and father's side, they both owned property as free Black people before the Civil War, and actually a substantial amount of property in Louisiana. And then, I don't know, 30, 40 years after the Civil War ended, we went from owning collectively more than 3,000 acres to owning none. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so when you think about, right, how slavery impacts you, how, again, the, the war over slavery impacted my own family, that rippled out, right? So people lost their land, they lost their economic and political status as land holding people. And then because they were driven off that land by racial terror, pretty much, right? We have no property. There's no, I own nothing, (laughs) right? My family owns no land, which today, right, could be worth a small fortune Mm -hmm. in Louisiana. So there's been no inheritance. There's no homes passed through, right? Like there's no tax Mm -hmm. breaks. There's none of those economic things, let alone, again, political and social things in my family, 
because that land was stolen from us because of the war over slavery and the attempts, right, to put Black folks in their place before the war began. So these are long-term, right, again, economic and political things that have manifested from the institution of slavery. But you don't get rid of an institution like that or its effects that lasted, again, over 200 years quickly. It's a long, gradual process. As you come across this information, like as you're researching your family history and learning all this information, are you sharing this with your family? And what has been their reaction to the information that you've been coming across? Oh, we. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say it's been complicated. Uh, I could imagine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I started the the book project I'm working on now is about my own family, five generations, actually, of folks. And, you know, I started it because there were a lot of myths, you know, that I could recognize as myths that were being passed down orally, right, through our family's oral history. And I, you know, I was curious, like, were we really descended from this governor of Louisiana, right, from the 19th century or not? Were we really Indian or not, right? Like, right. you know, that's a famous one, right? So I, I started this project for that reason. I wanted to to find out if they were accurate or if they were false. And so, I, you know, I found a little bit of both. And when you find out you know, historical truths that counter what your family has passed down, that's very difficult for them to deal with overall. I remember, for example, sharing with my mother that, you know, we came from, in part, a free Black slaveholding family. She did not want to hear it, right? I mean, that was a very difficult conversation. That's a hard one to hear. It was. On the flip side, when I told other family members that, you know, we were descended from slaves who believed that we had never been enslaved, right? That was also very difficult for them to process. So, you know, it's 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 challenging. I don't share everything that I turn up because, you know, that's yeah, you got me on that one. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard and I'm trying to figure out how to navigate that as I move forward. I'm I'm worried about some of the stories that I tell. I'm worried about publishing the book because I'm worried about how that will change again how a couple of generations of of my living family members understand themselves. That's a lot to consider. And, it is. And it makes me think about just the emotions that come up when you're researching. I, I remember when I did my ancestry, I was very excited. I started off very excited. I had this family tree built out and then there was there were some developments that I was not expecting and that shifted. But then I also got to the point where I was able to trace back so far to actually see the house that my ancestors lived in, which looks, I mean, it's like the typical down South slave master, like home. Wow. And that I like Googled it and found it and that broke my heart. I didn't realize it was going to be that emotional for me to actually put names, you know, to the yes. the images that we've mm-hmm. sort of had all these years. So my question for you, Candace, is when these emotions come up, I can imagine for most black people it's a lot of rage, it's a lot of anger, it's a lot of pain when they realize just how deep slavery and racism goes. How do you express those emotions? Like, what do you do with all of that? Because it's so heavy. And I feel like we don't live in a world that allows us to express that. People often pretend that it doesn't even exist, right? So what do you do? You know, I mean, well, there's the question of what I do and then how I also, I think, help people process some of that emotion. So, you know, I've been doing this work for a long time. I teach it every day. And so for me, it's not that I'm immune to it. It's that this pain and this trauma and the the difficulty of these emotions are part of the Black historical narrative, period. And so I tend personally, right? I mean, I'm honest about those, right? I'm candid with them. As they come up, I acknowledge them. But there's also an incredible beauty, and a sense of accomplishment and a narrative about resilience and perseverance and the spite, right, of all of this negativity and pain that I find 
equally as important. And so to me, finding out these difficult periods and these very painful personal stories actually inspires me more because it makes me realize how extraordinary it is, right? That I had ancestors who still found a way to make a way out of no way. And that, you know, I'm in the ivory tower, like I'm an academic with a PhD teaching history. And yet, you know, these are what generations of my folk had to go through. So for me, it's a balance. I honor all of the emotions as they come up and I sit with them. And I encourage other people who are going through this process and finding these personal stories to do the exact same. It is the beauty and the complexity and it's about human agency of American history. And that's amazing. It is so amazing to hear both sides or the whole story, right, of the pain that we've gone through, the pain that our ancestors have experienced, the tragedies, the turmoil, and then also being able to recognize that they went through it, they got through it, they were resilient so that we could be where we are. Mm -hmm. And then I think about, okay, well, what helped build that resiliency? Like, what were they doing? What did they have to cope? Like, what were their coping skills? And so then I'm curious for you, Candice, what are your coping skills as you are sitting with this every day? I laugh a lot. That's one of my coping skills. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, and that, that I say that with all seriousness. I have, you know, a, a huge sense of humor and I flex it at all times, even when it yes. seems appropriate to other, other people. <laughs> Dominique, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. I make a lot of jokes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, I, like I said, I, mean, I, I honor the feelings as they come, but I'm so moved. I, I feel like I'm standing uh, to be completely cliched, right, on the shoulders of giants. That there's nothing that to me I go through or have gone through in my life that people before me didn't go through 10, 20 fold. And so I'm, I'm moved and I'm inspired and I hold on to their resiliency. And so, you know, it, it makes the things that I have to endure seem frankly, really minuscule when you're talking about people who persevered through slavery, when you're talking about people who, you know, were terrorized or run out of their homes or off their land, when you're talking about people who lost straight everyone to an epidemic, you know, when you're talking about people who survived war, right? <laughs> right? Like, can I get up and go to work the next day, even though I was disrespected? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Then, we put it in that perspective. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's what it is. I mean, I think that history gives you perspective. It grounds me and it gives me perspective to just keep on pushing. And I always think, I don't, this is uh, Bill Withers. I, don't, I hope you know Bill Withers. I hope the I audience know, Bill know Bill's Withers well. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. He has a song right about basically being used up. And I think Oprah referred to it too, that, you know, at the end of your life, what you really want is, you know, to be completely used up. And I feel that way because I look at the people that I admire historically and they gave everything they had to the fight for equality. They were, you know, as used up as they could be at the end of their lives. And so, you know, I, I carry that responsibility with me as well because I know their narrative. That's beautifully stated. Yeah. And I think about what we many of us have learned in school and a lot of for a lot of us, the story begins with slavery, even though that's not where our story really begins. Right. Mm -hmm. I saw a quote. I don't remember it verbatim, but it was something along the lines of, you know, they didn't bring slaves over on this ship. Right. They brought over doctors and teachers and you know, mm -hmm. herbalists and just all kinds of professions. They brought mm -hmm. people that were living their life yeah. over on the ship. And so can you just speak to a little bit of what life was like and like what our many of our ancestors were doing before slavery, before they even got to, you know, Virginia all those years ago? I love that sentiment. Again, talking about perspective, right? I think that we have a tendency just to use the word slave, right? And not realize that they were skilled, smart, capable people who endured uh, tragedy. 
So, you know, it, it really depends. You're talking about a long era of slave trading overall. But when the slave trade started, you're mostly talking about folks who were kidnapped from the continent and forced into slavery, who had already built very sophisticated societies. They were arranged according to political hierarchies that were very similar to European societies at the same time. There were carpenters, there were lots of farmers, right? There were merchants and traders, there were herbalists, as you mentioned, right? There were spiritual guides and leaders of communities. So these folks who came, especially that first generation of folks who were enslaved, they, historians refer to them as the Atlantic Creoles. And they were an especially skilled generation, the first one, because these folks were basically moved across the Atlantic and they didn't come just to what would become the United States, right? They didn't wind up just in places like Brazil. They actually were used as guides for European exploration. So these are folks who had skills, essentially, they could take on multiple languages, right? Very quickly. They were highly adaptable, flexible. I'm sure they're incredibly charming because when you think about, right, what these first explorers were out there doing, they were meeting indigenous folks throughout the world. They were brokering deals, right? And peace treaties. They were political go-betweens in addition to sometimes being soldiers or being healers or musicians. I mean, all sorts of different things. So that first generation was particularly highly skilled. And then as time goes on, right? European slave traders begin looking for folks who are skilled in particular forms of agricultural work. So the people who were, you know, forced to come here from the continent who grew rice, for example, well, they had been growing rice on the continent, right? So, I mean, they'd been growing corn right on the continent. So they were looking for folks. They were taking folks from certain tribes and communities on the continent who already had these high level agricultural skills in these particular crops. They were forcing them into slavery, bringing them over and thus reaping the profits off of what seems like to us just right enslaved workers, but who are actually skilled farmers. Yeah. I'm just sitting with like, just the further acknowledgement that we truly are like the best. When you think about what you said, like exactly. that Europeans went to us to help them because mm-hmm. they didn't have the skills necessary. Right. Yeah. And that's true. And again, I, th- I think there's such a myth that, you know, this, European slavers just rolled up, you know, on the West Coast of Africa and just took whoever they could find. But it's not true. Slave trading was a business. And when you think about it as a business from that vantage point, right, you're not going after random unskilled folks that you can just beat into submission. You're looking for folks that are skilled that you can employ in these particular agricultural pursuits in order to make you money. And then you keep them, obviously, in those positions through fear. Mm, And I was going to ask, so when you think about the way that this happened, because it was really like a global takeover and the way that I'm thinking of it is like the most brilliant, but also disgusting global takeover. And that if you can, if you have, you know, a group of folks that you want to subjugate and just destroy psychologically, economically, in all these ways, if that was the ultimate goal, they did a hell of a job, right? Unfortunately, we were at the brunt of that. So I guess the question is, how does something like this even happen? You know what I mean? Because I feel like it's still happening today in some ways, but I don't know what times were like back then. It's just mind boggling to know that this could happen on such a global scale and they could have slaves on basically every, almost every continent, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know they dropped off various ancestors at different, you know, in the Caribbean and different, you know, countries. So I don't know, Candace. Mm-hmm. I, I just, yeah. I, that's a question for you too, right? I mean, the, the, a huge part of this was, was psychological warfare. It was deeply political. I, I always, you know, have to tell the truth that Europeans could not have created this massive transatlantic slave trade with, you know, 12 
plus million people being sold without Africans themselves, right, participating and doing the work of kidnapping and selling to Europeans. Mm -hmm. When you go back, right, to that level of detail and you recognize that, you have to understand, again, the significance of warfare. You have to understand the politics, right, that were taking place on the continent itself within Africa. And, you know, you have to understand that to keep people, because I, I think the question is not necessarily, I'm guessing, Terry, the question is not about, you know, how does slavery begin? It's how does it last for so very long? Yes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, our dear friend Kanye got that terribly wrong, right? With what he oh, talked about, right? Like, Lord. <laughs> I, won't even, I won't even repeat his quote, but, you know, I mean, the, there is an idea out there that, you know, that we, that we were better off or that we chose to be enslaved. And that's incredibly inaccurate. Slavery persists for so very long because different societies, actually crafts, right, series of legislation. They construct whole societies based upon a certain political and economic hierarchy in order to both create and then perpetuate and maintain slavery. It was so deep, right, by the 1860s that that's why we have a civil war, because there's nothing else that could bust up that institution of slavery besides war. You know, and and you're talking about the the fear of death, the threat of loss, not just of your own life, but of limbs, of people that you love being sold away from you. That's psychological warfare, and mm-hmm. you know that works. Yeah, and I feel like that psychological warfare continues today. Mm-hmm. It does, mm-hmm. and so. When you are in the classroom or you're interacting with students, talk to us a little bit about how you get them to see that connection between like what's happening today and learning from our past. Yeah, I try to stay away from the present as much as I can. <laughs> I try to stay in my lane as a historian. Yes. It certainly creeps in. You know that. You know, to me, it's really, really important that folks develop critical thinking skills. And mm-hmm. as a historian, right, w- w- what I do is try to help people understand how inequality was constructed in the first place, right, historically. And the goal of that for me is that they understand how to deconstruct it in its present day forms. So I actually think that you know when you highlight concrete examples of oppression, right, from two centuries ago, students are very quick, right? Young folks are very quick actually to recognize, you know, the, the consistencies to this day. You know, so that that's to me that part's not hard. it's getting them to understand the intricacies of it. And it's also getting them to understand that they actually have the agency and the power, right, to deconstruct those present day inequalities to, I'd like to always say this, to burn them to the ground, right, and build something in their place that is equitable. Was that too much? No. (laughs) Does that make sense? We're letting it soak in because we are, we like to be critical thinkers ourselves. And so we're letting that kind of soak in. And such an important skill these days, like thinking critically and not just reading or hearing a soundbite or reading a headline and just running with it. But it's like, have you done your own research? And, And by the way, Candace, I'm going to research on my own after our interview because there were some questions I asked you and I was like, I should probably do a little digging on my own as well. So I appreciate your insight and I'm going to build upon what you've shared with us. But one question that I wanted to ask is, you know, as you know, our podcast, we have women from all over the globe that tune in and I have been taught that, oh, you're African-American, right? And we have some folks that identify as being Black. Like, what? I know we're so complex and we're black people, are, we're, we're so complex. What What is the right term for us? And like, what should, how should we figure out how to identify ourselves, but also connect with others? Because I know that we have some women that might be, let's say in Brazil, maybe you're, you're from Puerto Rico, but you're like Afro-Latina. How do we all connect so that we can sort of build together, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, you know, uh, naming ourselves is impossible, it seems. And certainly there, there's a new term, right? Whether it's Afro this or Black or one of my favorites, Negro. I keep trying to bring it back. Nobody is with me on that point. I get it. <laughs> It'd be a hard sell. <laughs> I, apparently, apparently. But, you know, I just just to plug for Negro, that was like the chosen respectable word, right? Long before African-American, right? Or Afro-American or Afro-Latino, right? Like that was the chosen word. But I'll leave that there in the past for now. <laughs> We're not in the 1950s and I get that. You know, to me, it's it's just about like we're all part of the diaspora. And when you say and acknowledge that you're part of this larger African diaspora, it's about, to me, honoring the fact that you're very different, right? Like I, my identity, and I know this because I spent quite a bit of time in Brazil, my identity is very different as a black person than Afro-Brazilians are, than how they see themselves or the memories that they carry. Even their connection to slavery, right, feels dramatically different than my own as somebody who identifies as American and black. But what connects us is that slave trade. What, what connects us is that, you know, we are all descended from, you know, these folks who took quote a dear friend who quoted another scholar and forgive me because I can't remember the original scholar's name. He said, you know, we are descended from those who would not die. Ooh. Right. That's beautiful. I have to find out who originally wrote that because I need to credit that person. But that's what's up, right? Like to me, that's the spirit of the diaspora. That's what binds us all. It's that, you know, we are the folks who are still living in spite of this historic systemic, as you said earlier, Terry, this global effort essentially to erase us. We are still here and we would not and will not give up. I think that's a beautiful way to allow us to connect with our differences, because I think that sometimes there's so much division when you try to think of a word to call us all, right? Where, whether it's Black or you're this or you're you know African-American or American of African descent, which is what my mother taught me when I was younger, because we were trying to figure out a suitable and respectable word for being Black in America. And so I love that you pointed that out. And one thing Dom and I were talking about before we you know started chatting with you we started chatting about how in school we're always taught the same black people typically every you know black history month as far as being a student where we didn't really realize that we had the agency to go do our own research maybe right but the school sort of fed us the same figures but there were so many and you talked about some obscure figures before just the everyday people do you have any unsung heroes that you want people to research that we can I mean we need to research them all obviously right but do you have any that you can think of, Candace, that you would want our listeners and us to do our research on? I don't know. That to me, like the unsung heroes that I would want people to know about are the heroes and heroines in their own family. Like that's who I would really encourage everyone to research, <laughs> right? Like shake that family tree because you are absolutely bound to stumble across people who have these in inspiring narratives who change the course of history in big ways and in small ways. But, you know, in terms of famous figures, I think we're doing a better job. I think that, you know, mm -hmm. school teachers are doing a better job of pointing out different folks like Ella Baker. But what I would encourage is that you actually keep going in your research of the folks that you've already learned about, right? So Harriet Tubman, right, for example, Harriet Tubman now has a film out, thank goodness. But I can't tell you how many students said to me or other people said to me, oh, I didn't know Harriet Tubman was a spy in the Civil War. And I'm like, yeah, she was, <laughs> right? Like these major figures have really complicated, powerful, extraordinary backgrounds, and they're, they're very nuanced. And we don't know those stories. And what that means is that we don't actually understand their full humanity as people. Yes, the multifacets, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what they were up against and the decisions that they made. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Just did, find your own heroes and heroines among your own people, number one. And then find out more about, you know, the, those seemingly two-dimensional heroes that we hear so much about. Yeah. 
I love it. Me too. And so speaking of being multifaceted and not just two-dimensional, we're going to shift the energy up a little bit. Okay. And because we truly do recognize, appreciate, and celebrate the multifaceted woman and believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet, and you can still (laughs) be elegant and dance to strip club music, we invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. Do you take on the challenge? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> we'll I see. Don't know if okay. You had a baby before, okay. but let me go along with the question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's see. yes. Yay. Okay, right. Candace. So, what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? Oh, the most spontaneous thing I've ever done. Oh, I booked a trip to Peru to see this man that the relationship had gone on way too long and I booked it in like two days and then I ended up spending two weeks and it was it was it turned out to be an extraordinary trip but a bad decision in terms of (laughs) taking this spontaneous flight for a man when I knew the relationship was over that's a good one though I'm glad I'm glad you found that to answer the question that was actually a good example I think yes that is that is like probably the most spontaneous response that we've gotten from someone. Really? I I yes. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> like, it wasn't a good trip. Sorry. <laughs> My I shouldn't have been so honest. <laughs> no, we appreciate the honesty. That's what we, that's what we want. I mean, mm-hmm. but that says, I think that speaks to being a multifaceted person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having lived a little, or yes. maybe a lot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got the deep laugh on that one. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I made some choices. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of choices that we might not be too proud of, what's the most cringeworthy outfit you've ever worn? Oh, I think I look fine all the time let's see cringeworthy outfits (laughs) this is probably not what you're looking for but I I had a conversation (laughs) over brunch I was worried about a student and so I took it she you know I hope she never listens to this I mean I hope she does because it's a great show but (laughs) not this particular segment so I took her to I took her to brunch because you know she was going through it and to, over the course of the meal, she was inquiring about my sexual identity. And, you know, so I'm, I'm fielding her questions. I'm like, this is none of your business, right? Like you're my students, right? But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, just trying to sort of divert and focus back on her. And then she interrupts me to tell me that, you know, she made certain assumptions because, you know, I dress pretty dowdy. And I was like, dowdy. And so anywho, yeah. So apparently for a good six years of my career as a professor, I was dressing like a dowdy school teacher. So I had to change up my entire wardrobe. So (laughs) here came all the pencil skirts, like the, yeah, like just, I just changed everything about the way that I dress because of that conversation. So apparently I was wearing cringeworthy things for a long time. Yeah. Oh, and not I, in, not in a good way. Yeah, <laughs> you have good stories with your answers. I know. <laughs> Keep on sipping on that wine. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Okay. So our next question for you is: Let's just dive right into it. Are you going to twerk or two-step, Candice? If those are your two options, twerk or two-step? Oh, my God. So I'm going to have to say two-step because when I I tried to learn how to twerk and then my dog started barking at me. And so every time since then that I've attempted to twerk, the the dog starts barking. And I know I'm not doing it right. So I'm going (laughs) two-step. 
Yeah. Okay, Candace, we're, Dom and I have to bring you to the twerk class that we go to so they can teach you how to really twerk. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. My back yeah. is hurting more as I age, but I'm, I'll am i give it a shot. Yeah. Yay. All right. Yeah. Make yeah. It happen. <laughs> I, would. I would. I mean, I admire it. I admire it greatly. Right. That's true. Yeah. 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 But, yeah. It takes a lot of talent. Okay. It clearly, then I do not have yet, but I'm I'm hopeful <laughs> that a class will somehow, you know, make it okay for me. Yeah. Okay. Our final question: mm-hmm. What do you do for fun? I drink wine. <laughs> yeah, I bought, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I bought a hot tub recently that I Ooh. love. Yes. Okay. One of the best decisions of my entire life. For fun, I, I still dance, even though my dog barks at me in the background. Dancing is still one way, just getting my body connected to my spirits, which quiets mm. my mind. Yes. yes. And then I spend time eating good food and drinking more wine with friends. That's how I have fun. I love it. Sounds like you're living your best life. I'm working on it. Yes. Okay. Yes, <laughs> always. Well, we want to thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. And would it be okay if our listeners wanted to reach out to you for information on how to dive into their own family history? Well, sure. That would be, (laughs) like, I'm like, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Let me tell you about my side business I'm starting right now. I'm just kidding. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. How could our listeners get in touch with you? Do you have social media? Do you have an email? Like, how would you want them to reach out to you? Yeah. No, I don't. I don't have social media because I'm a historian. I live in the past. (laughs) But you can find me on the University of San Francisco's website. My email address is clharrison2 at usfca.edu. I do want to suggest for people who are just starting their research about history and their own family histories to check out, as Terry said earlier, Ancestry.com is a great site. Genealogy Bank is a free site where you can get started that's shared by or created by the same people who run Ancestry. There's newspaper sites online. There's lots of things to do, right, as you're trying to get started and answer some of these great questions about your own family. Amazing. Thank you so much, Candace. This was so much fun and so insightful. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I appreciate you, both of you. Thank you. Hey girl, hey, it's Terry here from the Her Space Podcast. Every Wednesday, I release a Wisdom Wednesday mini episode that'll give you the quick boost you need to get you through hump day. Visit herspacepodcast.com and click the Wisdom Wednesday with Terry link under start here to get your weekly gems. I hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at her Space Podcast, or check out our website at herspacepodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. There's something inside of me that's bigger than any obstacle. We'll see you next week, lady.